Let us join our hearts in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the precious gift of your word, and we open our hearts to you, asking that you would speak to us, and that you bring us into a deeper understanding of your truth. And this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Can a person acknowledge Jesus as Saviour but not as Lord? Can a person acknowledge Jesus as Saviour but not as Lord? Some think that the first part is easy and the second part is difficult and they think about it this way. In acknowledging Jesus as Saviour, we only have to receive, to take something from Him. In acknowledging Jesus as Lord, on the other hand, we have to give something to Him. And some people would like to have the former without the latter. They basically want to say to Jesus, thank you for the gift of salvation. Now, kindly excuse me as I get back to my own life. And today we want to examine, we want to critique this line of thought. Right off the bat, let me say that if we think it's easy to acknowledge Jesus as Saviour, then we probably don't really understand what it actually means to do that. Acknowledging Jesus as Saviour goes much deeper than simply taking something that's offered to us. And we can see this in Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus. Who was Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the ruling elite. He was well-educated. He would have lived very righteously. He was a person of impressive position and stature. He was an outstanding individual in many ways. But despite his status, there was much that Nicodemus didn't understand. And it's not an exaggeration to say that his conversation with Jesus blew his mind. Jesus challenged what he thought he knew. Some scholars believe that Nicodemus displayed a patronizing attitude towards Jesus. He may have had come to him with some genuine questions, but he was not a true believer or a worshipper. The Apostle John notes that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And that's probably because he didn't want to be seen with Jesus. He might have been wary of being associated with him. Nicodemus was, at best, a marginal believer. Well, he seemed to be rather confident about his position and knowledge. He said to Jesus, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He probably had in mind some things that he wanted to say or discuss after making this point. But Jesus then hijacked the conversation and took it in a totally different direction. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, many of us, I'm sure, would be familiar with this term, born again, but Nicodemus wasn't. He was perplexed by it. And he asked Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He was apparently thinking about physical, natural birth, and he rightly asked, how a person can experience this a second time in life. And we see that Jesus didn't answer this question directly. Instead, he said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, by kingdom of God, Jesus was referring to what we often call, simplistically, heaven, the realm in which we enjoy eternal life, eternal peace, rest, and joy. To enter the kingdom of God is to receive all that and, and more. And we must be born again in order for this to take place. Jesus made it clear that this second birth is not physical, it's not of the flesh. Instead, it is spiritual, it's supernatural. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And Jesus said that one must be born of water and the Spirit. Now, we probably kind of understand what being born of the Spirit means. This refers to spiritual birth, that in Christ we are brought from death to life in a spiritual sense, receive new life in the Spirit. But what does it mean to be born of water? What does it mean to be born of water? Some scholars think that this refers to baptism, and we make that association because we practice water baptism. But there's nothing in the context of John 3 that indicates this, and it's quite unlikely that Nicodemus himself would have understood that phrase, born of water, as referring to baptism. So if Jesus was talking about baptism, he probably would have expressed it differently. Others think that to be born of water is a reference to natural birth. And nowadays, water breaking is understood as a sign of labor, but well, there's no record of this in biblical writings. It didn't seem to be how they understood uh, that, that phrase at all. The phrase that Jesus does use, born of the flesh, is a clearer reference to natural birth. And so it's not likely that he would have confused matters by introducing the uncommon phrase, born of water. So maybe these two proposals don't quite work. Well, there's a third view that seems more promising. To be born of water and the Spirit could collectively refer to just one kind of birth, a spiritual birth. As Bible scholar D.A. Carson observes, there are parallels between John 3.3 3 and John 3.5, and this suggests that Jesus was in fact making the same point, that being born of water and the Spirit is the same as being born again. Jesus elaborated, he expanded on this idea of being born again by saying that it means being born of water and the Spirit. And not only that, he expected Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, to understand this. Therefore, it's likely that this idea can be found in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament, because Nicodemus would have been very familiar with that. So D.A. Carson ponders, where do water and the Spirit come together in the Old Testament in a context that promises a new beginning for God's people? Where do we see water and the Spirit coming together in the Old Testament in a context that promises a new beginning for the people of God? And he says that there are several possibilities, but the most obvious, the one that really stands out, is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. And there God says to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
Carson writes, so God is promising through the prophet Ezekiel six centuries before Jesus that a time is coming when there will be a transformative new beginning characterized by spectacular cleansing, symbolized by water that washes away all impurities and idols and by the powerful gift of the Spirit that transforms the hearts of people. That is what is required of people are to see and enter the kingdom of God. When Jesus told Nicodemus that one must be born again, he was saying that one must be purified and made new in order to enter the kingdom of God. In Ezekiel 36, who, who does the cleansing? Who does this work of transformation? It's not man, it's not the people, it's God. God says to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is God's work in us. He purifies us and makes us new. And this is essentially the same promise that we find in John 3.16, widely regarded as the most well-known verse in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Through faith in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, we can be purified by God and made new. We can be born again, saved from death, and given new life. This pattern of God intervening to save His people is found throughout Scripture. John 3, 14 references something that happened in Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. We read in John 3, 14 to 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is, of course, the Son of Man. And here, being lifted up doesn't refer to His exaltation. That phrase lifted up throughout Scripture often refers to that. But here, being lifted up refers to His crucifixion. 
Jesus would be lifted up on the cross, put to death for the sins of the world. And sinners who look to Him and place their trust in Him will be saved. The promise of God's salvation traces back earlier still to Genesis 12, today's Old Testament reading. When God said to Abram, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, God was referring to the blessing of salvation, of eternal life. This is received by trusting wholly in God, just as Abram did. We are justified by faith, by our trust in Jesus Christ. And such faith entails more than just a profession with our lips. Such faith is expressed through obedience to God's Word, expressed by giving Him our lives so that He can purify us and make us new. So back to the question that I asked at the beginning of this sermon. Can a person acknowledge Jesus as Saviour but not as Lord? And I hope that by this time you would answer emphatically no. He can't. We cannot acknowledge Jesus as Saviour without giving Him our lives and allowing Him to make us new. As R.C. Sproul writes, there is an absolute requirement that must be met if a person is to enter God's kingdom. A person must be changed by God. The disposition of his heart, which by nature does not want to do God's bidding, must be altered by God, the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36 makes it so clear that transformation is the expected result of being born again. Well, what might such transformation look like in real life? And as I was preparing this sermon, I came across a story about a man named Tom. Well, Tom's grandfather was one of the original mobsters who had brought the mafia from Sicily to America. Tom's upbringing was savage, and at the age of just 10, he vowed that he would never, ever shed another tear. He grew up as a thief, an extortionist, and a murderer. His heart was so cold that even hardened criminals found it difficult to look into his eyes because they saw nothing there but death. But God began to speak to Tom's heart, even though he tried hard not to listen. He felt convicted about his many evil deeds, but wanting to rob God of the chance to punish him with death, Tom put a gun to his own head and was about to pull the trigger. And just at that moment, the phone rang and Tom answered. It was a man he had met who kept inviting him to church. And just to prove that God was wrong, Tom put down the gun and agreed to attend the man's church. When the service was over, the pastor greeted him at the door and said to Tom, I have something I want to say to you, but I don't want to offend you. They say that the eyes are windows to the soul. When you first came in here, I looked into your eyes, and all I could see was a little boy crying, wanting to be loved. The pastor had exposed Tom's most painful secret. And Tom went back to the church that night and his intention was to murder the pastor. But to his own amazement, he couldn't go through with it. 
Instead, he talked with the pastor who asked him whether he knew Jesus, and he told Tom that he needed to be born again. Tom just laughed and said, Pastor, if the people in this church found out who I was, they would throw both of us out of here. I'm probably the worst sinner you'll ever see. These people don't want me to be one of them. I'm a sinner. He went on to recount his crimes, and before he knew it, he found himself kneeling on the ground, confessing his sins to God and opening the door of his heart to let Jesus in. And he later said, I've found Jesus. I didn't know it, but I had been searching for him all my life. And now that I have him, I'm never letting him go. Tom went on to be a prison evangelist. His life changed by God's forgiveness and love in Jesus Christ. Tom was born again. Returning to today's text, at the end of our passage, Nicodemus didn't look very good at all. But how did his story end? Where did he end up? In John 3, we noted that Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, probably to avoid being seen with him. We move ahead to John chapter 7, and we see that something had changed because Nicodemus there publicly spoke up for Jesus. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and was one of the Pharisees, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? As we near the end of John's Gospel, Nicodemus goes even further in his association with Jesus. John 19, verses 38 to 40, and this is after Jesus' crucifixion. We read, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. The Apostle John deliberately mentioned that Nicodemus had previously looked for Jesus under the cover of darkness. And he wants us to see that that had changed. Because for Nicodemus, there was no more hiding. There was no more hiding. He had been transformed and he was ready for the world to know. We have heard Tom's story and Nicodemus's story. Well, my friends, what's our story? What's your story? In this season of Lent, I urge us to spend time examining our lives. Let's ask, what are the signs of God's transforming work in my life? Is there evidence of this as an ongoing process? Can people see how I've been changed? Let's hear afresh God's call for us to die to ourselves, to give up our self-rule, our self-reliance. 
And I pray that we will allow Him to remake us, to purify us, and to make us new. Would you close your eyes with me for a few moments as we allow the Spirit to search us, to speak to us? And in your own way, would you respond to Him in faith, in trust, in obedience? Lord, hear our prayer, for we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.